Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminal Star. As always, I'm your host, Simon. Why am I here? One of my writers, this case, Emma. Thank you, Emma. Has written me a script. How Gypsy Rose Blanchard finally escaped a life of abuse. Oh, a cheery one today, I see. <laughs> I don't know why I think it's cheery. This is literally a true crime channel. So, uh, well, what did you come here for other than escaping abuse? Let's just get into it, shall we? Format of the show. Never read it before. Let's go. At around 4pm on Sunday the 14th of June 2015. Oh, this is upside down. I'm holding my iPad upside down. You never know because it rotates. At around 4pm on Sunday the 14th of June 2015, a status update was posted to the D. Gip Blanchard, the combined Facebook profile of D.D. Blanchard and her disabled teenage daughter, Gypsy. It read, That bitch is dead. Oh my. <laughs> okay. Within minutes, their concerned friends started commenting on the post with the top five commenters asking them whether they were okay, whether their Facebook accounts had been hacked, or whether they were watching the scary movie. Then DJIP commented on the post saying, I fucking slashed that fat pig, and word I can't use this early in the video, but it begins with R. Uh, her sweet innocent daughter, her scream was so fucking loud, lol. Oh my god. <laughs> Bro, are you just writing about your crimes on Facebook? That's insane. The statement was alarming enough that a woman named Sue suggested they should call the police. Um, yeah, good idea. Look, it's one of those things. Yeah, I always feel like I'm the person who'd be like, oh no, it's probably nothing. Don't call the police. They'll just be annoyed that I've wasted their time because there's a 99% chance it's nothing. But there's a 1% chance that something horrible has happened. And in this case, I think it's far more than a 1% chance. It seems like I I'd see that and I'd call the police. That would be, yeah, I'd definitely do that. I'd be like, yo, 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 should we call the police? Has anyone called the police? And if anyone, everyone's like, no, be like, okay, I'm going to do it right now. Let's call the police. Like, let's, let's do that. And it's okay. Like, feel free. Like, if you hear a gunshot coming from your next door apartment or whatever, I feel like I'll just be like, nah, they're just watching TV. They must have just dropped something really loud. There must be a car in their living room backfiring. I'd come up with like a thousand reasons why I couldn't be gunshots. And then I'd go back to sleep, which is crazy. Is it crazy? Am I crazy? Would people call the police? I feel like it's a very British thing to be like, everything's fine. Carry on. <laughs> Followed by a flurry of comments by multiple people saying that they were calling the police or heading over to the Blanchard house themselves. Don't do that. Call the police. There's literally possibly a murderer there. And an R-wordist. Kim and her husband, Dave, raced to Dee Dee and Gypsy's house, and Kim made multiple calls to Dee Dee's cell phone and their home telephone, asking Dee Dee to call her back as soon as possible. I already have a theory about what's happening. Okay. Here we go. Look, the title's called Escaping a Life of Abuse. Anyone in the audience thinking what I'm thinking right now, and that's that one or the other, either the mother or the daughter, possibly the daughter, was... Uh, it's one of those things where it's like, I'm going to wildly speculate. It turns out that I'm horribly wrong or something, and then that's going to be, like, look bad or, like, <laughs> libelous or <laughs> whatever it wants to be. But my theory right now is that the daughter killed the mother and then made it look like wrote this to like throw the police's eyes onto someone else when it was actually her. So either I'm right or I've just, you know, said some horrible shit about a disabled person. So with that in mind, <laughs> that very cancelable sentence, let's move on. Why do I do this to myself? They made multiple calls to Dee Dee's cell phone and their home telephone, asking Dee Dee to call her back as soon as possible. When they reached Dee Dee and Gypsy's house, no one answered the door, and their van with its disability sticker was still parked in the driveway. Kim called the Green County Sheriff's Office and asked them to come and do a wellness check. Deputies Robinson and Hughes arrived at the house in volunteer way and knocked on the door, but no one answered. 
They tried to look in through the windows, but they'd all been blacked out and the deputies couldn't see inside. Where is this taking place? I've already forgotten. Oh, I haven't been told yet. Okay. It sounds like America, doesn't it? Sheriff's office, volunteer way, Green County. There were no obvious signs of a break-in, and the deputies said that there was nothing they could do. But one of the kitchen windows was open, and Dave asked if he could enter the house that way and check on the family. The deputies agreed, and Dave climbed in through the window and entered the chilly house. The air conditioner had been turned up, and the house was a mess, but Dee Dee wasn't known for her stellar housekeeping skills, so Dave went looking for any signs of where Dee Dee and Gypsy might be. <laughs> you guys, like, if someone breaks in the house, like, Jesus Christ, it's a mess in here. Did someone already break in? It's like, nah, nah, right, we're just really messy. I'm quite pleased. I'm quite, like, my house is almost, even though we've got two kids, I feel like my wife and I and our cleaner <laughs> are pretty good at keeping things things tidy and i appreciate because i hate mess even though my office is messy it's kind of like an organized mess like i know where everything is and it's all like yeah there's there's sponsor stuff littered around the place but that's because i need to be able to quickly grab it like there's just a there's all laid out on the floor here it's just a bunch of various sponsor items that i need to reach for when i'm doing an ad read and so yeah it looks messy but it's I'm just making an excuse for it being messy. Why am I even talking about this? Let's carry on. Two of Gypsy's wheelchairs were standing in the living room, and Dave found Gypsy's electric wheelchair in the bathroom. In her bedroom, Dave noted that the bed was unmade, and her clothes and toys were strewn over the floor, but that didn't seem out of the ordinary to Dave, who described it as being a typical kid's room. Dave glanced into Dee Dee's room and noted that her bed was unmade and a blanket had been tossed on top of it. Again, nothing looked out of the ordinary, but after he unlocked the front door, Dave told the police that all of Gypsy's wheelchairs were still in the house, and in case the police didn't realize the significance of that, Kim and Dave gave the deputies a breakdown of Gypsy's medical ailments. They told the police that Gypsy had the mental capacity of a seven-year-old. Well, is a seven-year-old capable of doing that sort of murdering and then writing like that? I find it very easy to judge when a kid is my kid's age or younger. Because it's like, I know what their abilities were at that age, but anything above, currently, the age of four, I'm like, I have no idea. Like, my wife, how old do you think that kid is? I'm like, eight, 11, 13, don't know. <laughs> but like, any age below four, I'm like, yeah, that kid's about 27 months. <laughs> it's bang on. She had leukemia and asthma, had to be fed through a feeding tube that had been placed in her stomach, and was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy as a child, necessitating the use of a wheelchair. Essentially, Gypsy was particularly vulnerable, and if something happened to Dee Dee, they had to find her daughter, since Gypsy wouldn't survive for long on her own. At 10.03 that night, Channel 41 News reported that, quote, the Missouri Highway Patrol, well, there we go, we're in Missouri, aren't we, issued a statewide alert on a mother and daughter missing from Springfield tonight. They say the 19-year-old Gypsy Blanchard and 48-year-old Claudine Blanchard were last seen on the 10th of June. An endangered missing persons case file was opened, the neighbors were interviewed, and at 10.45 that night, the sheriff's office was granted a warrant to search the home of Dee Dee and Gypsy Blanchard. Just like Dave, the police officers who searched the house also noted the wheelchairs. They also noticed the spray bottle containing carpet cleaner that stood in the hallway. The police officers studied Gypsy's room, and when they entered Dee Dee's room, they turned on the bedroom light, lifted the blanket that covered the bed, and discovered the remains of the 48-year-old Claudine Blanchard. Well, first part of my theory? Yes, I mean, it's not at all close to being proven correct yet, but um, there we go. It's, it's, uh, that's, that's unfolded so far. She was lying on her stomach and had been stabbed in the back 17 times. Her autopsy report would later reveal that she'd already been dead for some time, but because the air conditioner had been turned on, the coroner could not accurately determine her time of death. Why not? Can't you just work out what the temperature was? You'd be like, well, it was turned down to 20 degrees. So uh, it, we just can't use that information. I've seen enough CSI. Can't they do that? Gypsy, however, was still missing. 
A murder investigation was launched, and forensics determined that someone had cleaned blood from the carpet in the hallway. Traces of blood were also found in and around the sink of the bathroom, and they swabbed the spots for DNA. Okay, I'm thinking it more and more unlikely that Gypsy is doing this with her uh, um, disability and her mental age, because this is, yeah, this is way more planned out, isn't it, than someone than a seven-year-old's capable of. Detective Stan Hancock was assigned to the case, and he spoke to both Kim and Dave as well as Dee Dee and Gypsy's other friends and neighbors to find out who could have targeted them. They all told him that Gypsy had been born prematurely, she'd suffered brain damage as a result, and that she had the mental capacity of either a four-year-old or a seven-year-old. It all depended on who told the story, though some people explained that she seemed far more mature than that. Uh-oh, that's another bit of, like, interest towards my crazy theory, isn't it? They told him that Dee Dee had fled an abusive marriage and was raising her sickly daughter on her own, that Gypsy's medical needs required Dee Dee to look after her 24-7, and that they struggled financially. They told Detective Hancock that the Blanchards were Hurricane Katrina survivors, that they lost everything in the floods, that they mostly survived on the goodwill of others, and that they were like family to them. And they all asked Detective Hancock the same question. Why would someone want to harm Dee Dee and Gypsy? Uh-oh. I have another crazy theory that I'm not going to say, but because it's wild and would be, if I get it wrong, it would be really bad. But let's just say that I have a theory about that, about the charity. Let's just leave it at that. And if it proves to be correct, I'll mention it and we'll call back to here. If not, then we'll never mention it again, <laughs> will we? But as Sheriff Arnott would later explain, things are not always as they appear. The Princess in the Tower Today's story begins back in May of 1967. Claudine Ann Petra was born on the 3rd of May 1967 to Claude Petra and his first wife, Emma. She was the youngest of six children, and shortly after her birth, Emma explained that her youngest baby was ill. According to Evans Petra, Dee Dee's older brother, quote, My mum said that she came along with all these sicknesses, heart murmurs, and stuff like that. Because of this, Dee Dee had to sleep in the room with Claude and Emma and couldn't go outside to play with her siblings, wasn't allowed to overexert herself, and didn't have to do chores. Dola Petra, Dee Dee's older sister, explains that, quote, My mum would always make us go play outside, and it was like, Oh, but your sister's not feeling good. Your sister has an upset stomach. She's got a headache. Go play outside. Be quiet. Leave her alone. Dee Dee was constantly told that she had a heart murmur and had to be careful, but she later used this as an excuse whenever she didn't want to do something. She was her mother's little shadow, and she thrived on all the attention her mother bestowed on her. According to Dola, quote, Dee Dee was just all about the attention. And another one, according to Evans, We didn't get to go to college, but Dee Dee went to college. We didn't get a car when we were growing up, but Dee Dee got the car. We knew that if you wanted something, you had to go out and earn it, but Dee Dee just wanted it and got it. Dee Dee had studied to be a nurse and worked as a nurse's aide, loved to dress up and go out and party with her friends, and in 1990, she met Rod Blanchard. In the HBO documentary, Mummy Dead and Dearest, Rod explains that, quote, I'm at the bowling alley hanging out one night, going there to hear a band, and I see this girl. She looks a little different. She doesn't look like she's from around here. The way she dressed and carried herself, she stood out from the crowd. With her dark brown eyes, curly hair, and wide smile, Dee Dee was more than pretty, and Rod was hooked. They exchanged numbers. <laughs> so this dude's describing in a documentary, how do you meet your wife? Well, I saw her, and she was hot. <laughs> That's it. That's it. He's like, she stood out because she's hot. <laughs> they exchanged numbers, dated for four months, and then Dee Dee gave him a call and told him that she was pregnant. Rod was a southern boy, and his mama had raised him to believe that if he got a girl pregnant, he had to do the right thing and marry her. So he did. With his parents' permission, the 17-year-old married the 24-year-old Dee Dee. Oh, wow. He's quite a bit younger, isn't he? Is that even legal? Is that legal? I don't think that's legal. Quote, she was the perfect southern wife. 
a really nice girl, very polite, very generous. But I woke up on my 18th birthday and realized I wasn't where I was supposed to be. I wasn't in love with her, really. I knew I got married for the wrong reasons. We were only married for three months. I promised her I would do everything I could to take care of her and the child, to do what I can for them financially and mentally, but I just couldn't stay. Yeah, this is really bad, but the dude's also 18. Like, if this was a 35-year-old, I'd be like, what the f*** are you doing? <laughs> like, you should have thought about this. But he's he was 17. It's like his brain is not crinkly enough to figure this out. Their daughter was born on the 27th of July, 1991, and Dee Dee and Rod decided to name her Gypsy Rose because Dee Dee liked the name Gypsy and Rod loved Guns and Roses. <laughs> really? This is the most, like, 18-year-old shit I've ever seen. After her divorce, Dee Dee had moved back in with her parents, and they now helped look after Gypsy while she went to work. But when Gypsy was three months old, she fell ill. A scared Dee Dee called Rod and told him that Gypsy had sleep apnea, that she'd stop breathing while she slept, and that she'd get seizures. She explained that every time Gypsy got one of these seizures, it would impede her mental development and could result in her becoming mentally disabled. She told Rod that she needed money to buy Gypsy a sleep apnea machine, and Rod agreed. He gave her the money Gypsy needed for treatments and the money that was needed for a sleep apnea machine. Yeah, I have a feeling that a sleep apnea machine might be in my future. Um... <laughs> It's like, you know, when you look at your parents and you're like, you see what's happening to them as they get older, you're like, oh, yeah, you know. Because <laughs> you're already like, I don't know, I got high cholesterol. My dad's got high cholesterol. And you look at the things that he gets as he gets older. He's got like, uh... <laughs> should I be sharing this? I don't think he'd mind. I don't think he'd mind. Um, it's not like an embarrassing health condition or anything. But it's like, yeah, I look at my parents and I'm like, yeah, sleep apnea machine's probably in my future, isn't it? Gonna have like a weird mask on my face in the night. Like that woman in, um... Oh, what's that TV show where the world ends? Uh, the Last Man on Earth. Dee Dee became very overprotective and wouldn't allow anyone to look after Gypsy. The only people she would allow to watch her for more than an hour was her own parents, Claude and Emma. But when Gypsy was five, Emma fell ill and Dee Dee was the one to look after her. Dee Dee didn't do a very good job of it, though, and her siblings would later claim that Dee Dee would leave her sickly mother alone in bed, covered in filth and begging for food. Oh, my lord. If you see that, you're like, oh no, yeah, she was always begging for food when we went round. At that point, call the f***ing police or social services, whoever you're supposed to call in that situation. Because that's not right. Emma passed away in 1997, and according to her son Evans, quote, When my mum passed away, Dee Dee took it hard. You know, the person who babied her all her life wasn't there anymore, but she still needed that attention. Around this time, Dee Dee gave Rod a call and told him that Gypsy needed eye surgery because she was cross-eyed. I get the feeling that this is not... The money's just going on something else, isn't it? She was also having seizures again, and this was affecting her mental capacity even further. Then Gypsy was suffering from chronic middle ear infections and needed stents put in. Gypsy developed gastroesophageal reflux disease, or GERD, which meant that her stomach acid was pushing up into her esophagus. GERD GANG! And she needed a feeding tube to be put in so that she could be fed baby formula through a machine. According to Rod, it got to the point where Dee Dee didn't work anymore, and she was constantly looking after Gypsy. Quote, Dee Dee was a great mum. I'll tell her all the time that I don't know how you do it, you know, day in and day out, taking care of Gypsy being there for her. I thought she was the best mum in the world. According to Gypsy, some of her earliest memories were from the time she was in hospital for various surgeries. It wasn't all bad, though. Quote, My mother was like a best friend to me. We used to do things together all the time. Go to the movies. Go to the park. The zoo. That is 100% not someone who, like my kids for. I know that that is not a sentence that a four-year-old says. Like a four, uh, meant someone with a mental capacity of four would be like, you're my best friend. Not, she was like a best friend to me. <laughs> no, like my kid says, sometimes she'll say, Dad, you're my best friend. And I'll be like, oh, 
<laughs> You're my best friend too. Initially, Gypsy grew up surrounded by her cousins and extended family, but as she got sicker, her mother started keeping her from Rod, his new wife Christy, and Gypsy's half-siblings. When she was five or six, her mother told her that she had epilepsy. At the age of seven, Gypsy was riding on the back of Grandpa Claude's motorcycle, and they had a small accident. Gypsy only sustained some minor scrapes, but while she was in hospital, she had to use a wheelchair, and when she was discharged, Dee Dee told her that she was now paralyzed from the waist down and had to continue using a wheelchair. Um, so, you know, can I introduce my crazy theory as, le like, less crazy now? My crazy theory was, like, you know, when I said I wouldn't air it, was that before any of this was revealed, that they're faking it for charity. Like, the mum is just forcing her to be, you know, uh, disabled and have all of these problems for attention and charity. It's like that Munchausen's by proxy thing. Dee Dee called Rod and told him that Gypsy had been diagnosed with muscular dystrophy or ALS and that she'd eventually use the, lose the use of her leg muscles, necessitating the use of a wheelchair. Oh my god, ALS is like brutal. Like that was what that ice bucket challenge was about. And I was then I was looking up ALS and I was like, oh wait, that's what um, Stephen Hawking has. And then you read about people who have ALS and you're like, oh my god, Stephen Hawking like lived remarkably long. Mostly it's just, just death. Oh, I don't like that. I don't like thinking about that. According to Rod, quote, that is terrifying to hear about your child. After that first time seeing her in a wheelchair, I never saw her walk again. Gypsy would later tell Dr. Phil that after her mother told her that she needed to start using a wheelchair, she had to start acting like she couldn't walk or use her legs. When Dee Dee did catch her walking, she got so upset with me, she would punish me so bad, like she would start hitting me with a coat hanger and telling me all kinds of mean things. She would tell me that she wished she had had an abortion when she had the chance, that I ruined her life, that I had no idea how hard it is to keep up everything she'd build. Around this time, Dee Dee started shoplifting, stole money from friends and family, and was arrested on multiple occasions for writing bad checks. She went by various names and would later go by Claudinea instead of Claudine. According to her father, Claude, no matter where she went, she was doing all kinds of stuff. <laughs> it's very generic, isn't it? It's like, uh, yeah, me too. Like, wherever I go, I'm doing all kinds of stuff. Drinking coffee, working, spending time with my family. <laughs> all kinds. After Emma's death, Claude married a woman named Laura, but she and Dee Dee didn't get along. Dee Dee and Gypsy were still living with Claude at the time, and shortly after their marriage, Laura fell ill. According to Claude, Laura, she stayed nine months in bed after that. She couldn't get up. I didn't think she was going to make it. Oh my lord. Is Dee Dee poisoning her? It's also a very weird housing situation right there. Meanwhile, Dee Dee's family had started to realize that Gypsy wasn't as ill as Dee Dee made her out to be. Some of them even told Rod that Gypsy had no trouble walking on her own and that Dee Dee was making everything up. But when he questioned Dee Dee about it, she got upset, took Gypsy, and moved to another town. After they left, Laura magically recovered, and the family started suspecting that Dee Dee had been poisoning her. Yes, no shit. Call the police. Call social services. Get this sorted out. Dee Dee kept on shoplifting and writing bad checks. Doctors figured out that Dee Dee was lying about Gypsy's various medical conditions. And as soon as things got hot, Dee Dee packed up their things and they moved on to the next town. Rob would later explain that, quote, They moved further and further away and it got harder and harder to see Gypsy. I'd go to their house and visit for a couple of hours, hang out. But when Gypsy and I would start building a little closeness, a little bonds and everything, it would be three or four months before we could get back together and rebuild upon that. It seemed like Dee Dee was never letting us build that father-daughter relationship that you're supposed to have with your children. It sounds like this dude, like, it's bad and all that, you know, when he was 18 and he left and stuff, and I don't like that. But he also was 18, and now it seems like he's really trying to make an effort, which I commend. I like that. 
During one particular visit, Rod noted that Gypsy seemed scared of him to quote, At that time, she was real young. She was so scared of me. She was shaking. I don't know what Dee Dee told her about me, but I was probably the big bad wolf or something, you know? Gypsy must have been so confused. Dee Dee was probably telling her the day before that I don't love her and all this stuff, and then here Gypsy is visiting with me, and Dee Dee's telling her, Look, that's your daddy. Give him a hug. Yeah, kids get it's kids get so confused. Like sometimes I make a joke. <laughs> and my kid will be like, What, Dad? And I'll be like, oh, it's just a joke. I was just joking. I forget you don't really understand sarcasm yet. I'm sorry. <laughs> Because of all of her supposed medical conditions, Gypsy wasn't allowed to go to school. She still had to go for numerous medical tests, and she would later explain that, quote, The doctors thought that she was so devoted and caring. If we'd be going to the doctor, she would do all the talking. I'd always have a stuffed animal or a Barbie doll. She'd just tell me, just play with my Barbie doll, and if the doctor would come to examine me, just stay in the wheelchair, be calm, play with your doll, and don't move your legs. By the time Gypsy was 14, Dee Dee would tell doctors that Gypsy suffered from epilepsy, she was vision impaired, hearing impaired, had GERD, was quadriplegic, had muscular dystrophy, had anemia, and had to sleep with a CPAP or breathing machine since the age of 10. She had severe asthma, numerous allergies, incontinence, lung disease, a heart murmur, and the mental capacity of a 7-year-old, and had been diagnosed with leukemia when she was 7. Good lord. Just, did, did you just choose every disease? Did you just go to like the medical textbook and be like, yeah, 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 all of them? Gypsy had to undergo over a hundred medical procedures between 1994 and 2015. They included multiple eye surgeries to fix her crooked eye, surgeries to remove her salivatory glands so that she wouldn't drool, surgeries to keep her from vomiting, muscle biopsies to find out why she couldn't walk, and teeth extractions to remove teeth that had started rotting away as a result of the strong medication she was taking. This is horrific. According to Gypsy, quote, I was just as much in the dark as everybody else. The only thing I knew was that I could walk. I was taking medication that she said was cancer medication. She would shave my head and say, oh, well, it's going to fall out anyway, so let's just keep it nice and neat. I was on breathing medication, medication for seizures, medication to help go to the bathroom, pain medication, anxiety medication. I would have to put on the breathing machine every night, and then another machine was for the feeding tube. It was controlling what I'd eat. My medication would be put through there. I really wouldn't even have to be awake, so she could put whatever in my body, and I wouldn't even know. I really didn't think that any of this abuse was going on. It's like when you're abused, but you've lived that way your whole life, you don't really know that you're being abused. You don't know any difference. Also, according to Rod, quote, I never raised any hard questions with Dee Dee because she still allowed me to talk to Gypsy when I called and keep some kind of relationship. I knew that if I raised any serious questions or issues, she could cut me off in a minute. So the relationship we had was just mostly phone calls, gifts, birthday cards, stuff like that. I just wanted to try and make her feel like I'm going to be here forever, waiting. One day you're going to call me and say, Hey dad, it's Gypsy. Can you come and see me? I was just hoping for that day to come, and it never came. All of these treatments and hospital visits cost a lot of money, and the $1,200 that Rod was sending them every month didn't cover all of their expenses, so Dee Dee applied to numerous non-profits for financial assistance. Their church held fundraisers for them, and people donated medical equipment, but it wasn't until 2005 when Dee Dee would really start benefiting from Gypsy's numerous medical conditions. The Little Bluebird In August 2005, Dee Dee and the 14-year-old Gypsy were living in low-income housing and were barely scraping by when news broke that Hurricane Katrina was heading for New Orleans. They evacuated immediately and were placed in a shelter in Covington that had been set up for refugees with special needs. There, the always-smiling, chronically-ill Gypsy drew the attention of several media outlets as well as Dr. Janet Jordan, who told the local news station that, When I first met her, I had to cry a little bit. And she goes, It's okay. You're only human. Dr. Jordan befriended Gypsy and Dee Dee, who told her that they'd lost everything in the flood, including Gypsy's medical records and birth certificate, 
Dr. Jordan then suggested that they should move to Missouri, and before long, Gypsy's new minor celebrity status enabled them to be airlifted to Aurora in September 2005. In 2007, the Odie Foundation, a foundation that supports people living with feeding tubes, named Gypsy their 2007 Child of the Year, explaining that, quote, Gypsy Rose Blanchard is 12 years old, yet one of her friends says she has wisdom and compassion beyond her years. Multiple health issues don't stop Gypsy from encouraging and uplifting others. At eight years old, Gypsy took the allowance she had been saving up for a trip to Disney and used it instead to buy food and blankets for those in need. When she and her mom ended up in need themselves, Gypsy's mom says they never complained. Instead, she would say things are getting better and point out the beautiful flower, saying, We didn't see that yesterday. How lucky that we can see it today. The quote ends. Of course, we can't be sure how much of this story is true, but one lie was now printed for all to see. Dee Dee's claim that Gypsy was 12 instead of 16. I know she lost her birth certificate. But aren't there like other records? It's not like you leave the hospital and it's like, here's your birth certificate. Don't lose it. I mean, you shouldn't lose it. There's like going to be a duplicate of that that the government's going to keep in some dusty office somewhere on a computer somewhere, right? It's not just like, oh, now no one knows. <laughs> this is like not that far in the past. In March 2008, Habitat for Humanity announced they were going to build a family a new house in Springfield, Missouri. They moved into their new house in October 2005 and the local news covered the event. Paramedics and their new neighbors helped Gypsy and Dee Dee move all of their things into the house, which included a ramp, specially built doorways so that Gypsy could move around the house in her wheelchair, and a bathtub with jets to help ease Gypsy's sore muscles. During an interview, Dee Dee explains that it's a blessing. People have been so nice to us. It feels like we finally came home. She still claimed that the now 17-year-old Gypsy was 12, and she managed to get away with it because Gypsy was so small. Many people guessed that she was only 5 foot or 1.5 meters tall, and she was thin and undernourished because she was still mostly surviving off of baby formula. She dressed in Disney princess costumes, wore curly plastic wigs and tiaras, spoke in a high voice, and had been trained by Dee Dee to use certain phrases that made her sound younger than she was. In this photo, taken at Disney World, Gypsy was 22, and she looks uh, a lot younger than 22. In the news footage, you can see Dee Dee holding onto Gypsy's hand as she talks to the interviewer. You can see it in several other videos of the two of them. Dee Dee is always standing or sitting next to her daughter, holding onto her hand tightly. According to Gypsy, she was always aware that she had to keep up her mother's lies and that she had to act a certain way in front of the cameras or other people, or she'd be punished once they got home. Quote, If I said something that I wasn't supposed to, she'd squeeze my hand, and I'd know, zip it. When she was later asked why she didn't confide in anyone or had just gotten up out of the wheelchair in front of other people, Gypsy explained that she didn't want to disappoint her mother. Quote, I didn't think anyone would believe me. I thought that everyone would eventually tell my mum, and that would make my home life even worse for me. I feared her more than I feared anyone else. Yeah, I don't think that's a reasonable question. It's like, why didn't you just get up out of the wheelchair? Like, why didn't you just confront your abuser? And it's like, well, it's way, way more complicated than that. Gypsy was active in a lot of charity groups from a young age and made a lot of friends there, but Dee Dee was always standing next to her daughter, monitoring what she said or did. Gypsy got to go to movie premieres and comic book conventions. The Make-A-Wish Foundation sent her to Disneyland, and she got to meet the cast of the Harry Potter movies and appear on television. She joined a Star Wars troupe, dressed up as a pink stormtrooper, and visited children's hospitals, and was gifted hundreds of thousands of dollars to help her pay for her numerous medical treatments. And throughout all of it, Dee Dee was standing at her side, basking in the limelight that was reflecting off of Gypsy. I think my initial prediction and my secondary prediction are all bang on. They pretended it, knew that already, and then she murders her mum because she's been abused by her and that's what happens. My theory. My theory.
In the photos and videos, Gypsy looks happy, but she'd compare herself to a bluebird that was locked up in a cage. She still wasn't allowed to go to school, wasn't allowed to have friends her own age, still had to undergo painful tests and procedures, wasn't allowed to be a normal teenager, and had lost almost all contact with her father and stepmother. Dee Dee, on the other hand, had made friends with a number of people in their neighborhood, including a single mother of four called Amy Pinegar. Amy's daughter, Aaliyah Woodmancy, was the same age as Gypsy, and whenever the two families got together, Aaliyah took Gypsy under her wing and they'd talk about movies, fashion, boys, you know, typical teenage stuff. But according to Aaliyah, anytime Gypsy and I were together, her mum was always present. She was immediately like a filter for us. Gypsy wouldn't talk about anything personal while we were together. Shortly after her 15th birthday, Gypsy came across an old Medicaid cart that had her details on it, including her real date of birth, the 27th of July, 1991. According to that card, she was 19. When she asked her mother about it, Dee Dee claimed that it was a printing error and showed Gypsy her birth certificate, which stated that she had been born in 1995, not 1991. It's a fake one, isn't it? It's a fake one. But she's not going to know any difference. But the seed of doubt had been sown, and soon the little bluebird felt ready to leave the nest. Just before we continue with today's episode, I want to tell you that it's brought to you by Green Chef. Green Chef is a CCOF certified meal kit company. They make eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle, whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, that's a long list, or just looking to eat more balanced meals. Green Chef offers a range of recipes to suit your preferences. Look, it's the new year. You can make your New Year's resolutions a breeze with Green Chef. You can build healthy habits the easy way with nutritious recipes from the number one meal kit for clean eating. With Green Chef, you can count on meals that are good for your taste buds and good for your body and also good for the planet. Plus, if you're looking to stock up on functional snacks and clean beverages to support your gut and your brain health, well, head to the Green Market and shop their new Green Bundles, a curated selection of unique hand-picked goods that support your overall wellness goals. You know, I'm, I'm one of these people who wants to like be healthy and eat healthy and all this stuff. It's so hard because it's like, oh, yeah, but it's just easier to get takeaway or cook something unhealthy because if it's unhealthy, it's easier to make it tasty, isn't it? But Green Chef, they basically, you know, make it a lot easier for you. So you don't have to eat unhealthy and you don't have to make too much of an effort. It's just easier with Green Chef. So go to greenchef.com slash 60casual and use code 60casual to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months, which is brilliant. Again, greenchef.com slash 60casual, use code 60casual for 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. And now back to today's episode. Tangled. According to Gypsy, quote, I liked the Disney movie Tangled. It's about Rapunzel. She's a princess in this kingdom, and she's kidnapped by Mother Gothel from her real family. And Mother Gothel keeps her in this tower for all of her life and tells her, don't leave this tower. And so that is all she knows. At the end, Mother Gothel died. She got thrown out of a window because Rapunzel tried to stand up for herself and leave her tower. But in Disney movies, everything's fantasy. It's a fairy tale. And life is not a fairy tale. I learned all of that the hard way. Gypsy's computer was her only access to the outside world. Gypsy would go on the internet and look up whatever interested her. She also used it to message people she'd met, and Gypsy would secretly chat with Aaliyah, enabling her to form a close friendship with her. In 2011, the 20-year-old Gypsy reconnected with a man she'd met at a sci-fi convention. According to Gypsy, I told him vaguely about what was going on at home. He told me, you just pack your stuff and you can come live with me in Arkansas. Gypsy packed her bags, snuck out, and ran away from home. Someone offered her a lift, she agreed, and he drove her to her new friend's house. Her freedom didn't last long, though. Within like four hours, my mum found me at his place, because we had mutual friends in common. 
Dee Dee confronted the man angrily, waved Gypsy's birth certificate in his face, and told him that Gypsy was still 16 and underage. Dee Dee threatened to call the police on him, and he had no choice but to stand back and let Dee Dee take Gypsy back to Springfield. Quote, she took me back home, smashed my computer with a hammer, smashed my cell phone with a hammer, and said, if you ever do that again, I'll smash your fingers with a hammer. Dee Dee then tied Gypsy to a bed with a dog leash and a pair of handcuffs, and kept her locked up like that for two weeks. Dee Dee blacked out their window so that no one could see into the house, confronted Alaire about their messages, and ranted about Alaire was corrupting her sweet little girl. Then Dee Dee had Gypsy legally declared incompetent and told her daughter that even if she went to the police, no one would believe her because she was retarded. Someone even called the Green County Sheriff's Department and made an anonymous report explaining that Gypsy was being abused, but Dee Dee showed them the paperwork and convinced them that everything was fine, leaving Gypsy with nowhere to run. It was a rough year. I call that the bad times. I was just kind of at that point where you're like, I'm angry at the world, and this is unfair. Why couldn't anyone figure it out before it got this bad? Since her computer was now broken, Gypsy waited until her mother was asleep and then snuck into her mother's computer so that she could message her friends. In October 2012, she signed up for a free Christian dating site and made a profile for herself, explaining that she was interested in getting married and starting a family. And that is how the 21-year-old Gypsy met Nicholas Goadjohn, a 23-year-old man from Big Ben, Wisconsin. They hit it off right away, and according to Gypsy, at first it was all light-hearted. If you got married, where would you like to have your honeymoon? Where would you like to get married? Where are all the places you want to travel? Different things like that. Normal stuff. Now, look, I feel I need to provide a little bit of context for this next part. I also did a lot of online dating when I was in my early 20s. I had a very demanding job and was constantly traveling, and it was the only way that I could meet single men my age. It also meant that initially, I fell into the same pitfall that Gypsy did. I've never done online dating, because it came a little bit after, like, well, after I was with my now wife. But, like, I don't know what the pitfall is here. <laughs> I'm like, oh, what is it? One of the problems with online dating is that your relationship with the other person is based entirely on your interpretation of who they are as a person. You start to attribute qualities to them that they don't have, and then you start building a fictional person in your mind that measures up to what you want in a partner. Wait, why do you do that? Don't you build up what they are based on your, like, talking to them? Like, on the phone or on chat or whatever? On at least two occasions, I'd been talking to someone for at least a month before we were able to meet in person, and every single time I was disappointed because they didn't match up to the perfect boyfriend that I'd conjured up in my head. Ah! That makes sense. I see that. Because it's like little bits of contact over a month and then you just spend the rest of the time fantasizing. That makes sense. That makes more sense. I kind of thought that it would be a like shorter time between chat and meet. It didn't take me long to catch on though and I started implementing the three-day rule. There we go. We had to meet in person within three days of meeting online and then go on at least three or four dates before we decided to officially start dating. And it worked. I'm now happily married to someone I met on Tinder. But obviously, Gypsy encountered the worst case scenario. The creepy guy who turns out to be a killer. So... Let's start counting those red flags, shall we? Gypsy told Nick that she wasn't allowed to date, that she had numerous medical conditions, she was in a wheelchair and had to wear a wig, and he said that he didn't mind. She was beautiful either way. Within a week of meeting Nick, the two of them agreed that they were soulmates, and they were now a couple. Gypsy snuck onto her mother's computer every night to talk to Nick, and as their relationship progressed, they started talking about their interests and wants and dreams. Gypsy created numerous fake Facebook accounts to keep her mum from finding out what she was up to, and after they had been talking for about a month, Gypsy felt that she could no longer lie to Nick. She told him what she knew, that her mother told everyone that she was younger than she was, she didn't seem to be as sick as her mother claimed her to be, she had to use a wheelchair despite the fact that she could walk, and that her mother was very overprotective. If I was this dude, I'd be like, you're what? With a what now? Either you're insane, or this is a crazy situation. And I'd be like, no, you've got to be insane, because that's just unbelievable. That's not real. 
<laughs> what? In Gypsy's mind, Dee Dee simply didn't want her to grow up. Then Nick felt comfortable enough to share his darker side with Gypsy. He told her that he had Asperger's syndrome, aka autism, that he was psychic, that he had multiple personalities, and that he had an evil side named Victor that would take control of him sometimes. Oh my god, what is happening? He also told her that he'd like it if each of his multiple personalities could have their own girlfriends. So Gypsy came up with alternate versions of herself to match his alter egos. What the fuck is going on? At first I was like, wait, he just wants to have many girlfriends at the same time. Uh, that's his excuse. But no, he wants her to have many different personalities. What is what is going on? Nick also told Gypsy that he liked the idea of BDSM and that once they were together, they had to try it. And he even had her watch videos on the subject. Gypsy would be the bell to his beast. She'd be his slave and he'd be the master. Quote, his ex messaged me and she told me he's a really bad guy. He thinks he's a vampire and he's into all this dominant submissive stuff. And I was thinking, it's just an ex. She's just bad mouthing him. She doesn't know anything. She's jealous. It's not like I ever had a boyfriend before, so I didn't really know what was a normal relationship. I don't know, this is, it seems profoundly weird to me. The two of them built elaborate romantic fantasies together, in which their alter egos would act out certain scenes and sexual acts. Nick would write scripts for them, and she'd have Gypsy record herself acting out his sexual fantasies. Nick's evil side was possessive and domineering, and he especially liked Ruby, Gypsy's darker side. He'd talk about how he'd like to possess and claim her, telling Gypsy that they're twin flame soulmates and that he's always with her. During one of these darker discussions, Nick allegedly told Gypsy that he used to be an assassin. Oh, in a previous life. <laughs> yeah, 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 and I used to be Napoleon. Chill out. And that he would be able to protect her from anything and anyone. Quote, And I said, Even my mum? And that's kind of where it developed from there on. Gypsy would later explain that around this time, Dee Dee had become more physically abusive. She'd habitually slap or punch Gypsy and would starve her for days on end if she tried to stand up for herself or ask Dee Dee to allow her to have friends, to date, to get married, have a life of her own. Quoting again, I got scared and desperate, and the only thing I could think about was that I wanted this real life of freedom and happiness, and how could I get it? Quote ends. Sometime around April or May 2014, Gypsy told Nick that she was thinking about killing her mum. To quote again, I was like, are you serious? This is not anything to joke around about. She said that it's the only way that they can be together. Now, the two discussed this at length and then decided that murdering Dee Dee would be a last resort, and they'd later refer to it as Plan B. In the meantime, they came up with other plans to be together. The first, Plan A, was to meet each other in real life. Oh. Oh, okay, so this is all of this has been happening online so far. Okay, that kind of makes sense. I just kind of put the... <laughs> wow. Gypsy would then introduce Nick to Dee Dee, and hopefully Dee Dee would allow Gypsy to build a relationship with Nick. Plan C was to have Gypsy fall pregnant, because in her mind, at least if they had a child together, Nick simply had to be in her life. For a while, they decided to go with Plan C. Gypsy was excited about the prospect of becoming a mother, told Nick that she'd have to have her feeding tube removed before they went through with their plan, and she'd start stealing baby clothes from Walmart by hiding them in her wheelchair. Gypsy posted about their plan to have a full pregnant on a Facebook mummy group and asked the other women for advice, and the women on there viciously tore into their plan and suggested that Gypsy should find herself a new boyfriend instead. Nick then confided to a friend that, I saw comments on her post to that group that was bad-mouthing me, and she just took it like, wow, okay, I'm a wait. And it had to do with finding someone better than me. Okay. <laughs> What's that sentence? <laughs> what are you talking about? That brought an end to Plan C. In October 2014, Gypsy messaged Aaliyah Woodman C from her secret Facebook account and explained that she had a boyfriend, Nick, and that she loved him. 
She suspected that her mother wouldn't approve of him, though, since her mother didn't want her to date, and the 25-year-old Nick was so much older than her. Not that much older, isn't she? Like, 21? <laughs> it's like, uh, like uh, you know, properly, but younger in her mum's mind. This concerned Aaliyah, though, since they were repeatedly told that Gypsy had the mind of a seven-year-old. Yet, now she was talking about eloping with some guy and starting her own family. Wait, this Aaliyah woman, who's friends with her, surely you'd like... She's got to be around her actual age, right? So, what, something around 20 or whatever. And wait, she must know she doesn't have the brain of a seven-year-old because otherwise she wouldn't be having all these conversations with her. Like, what? Yet now she was talking about eloping with some guy, starting her own family. Gypsy made it sound like, quote, some kind of magnificent fairy tale was unfolding. I mean, a very, very weird fa- I mean, fairy tales were weird. This kind of works for a fairy tale, doesn't it? It's like, yeah, no, he had all these personalities and he thought he was the devil. He used to be an assassin in a previous life. It is actually like one of those original, like, because fairy tales are actually scary. Like the Cinderella one, is Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, I mean, Sleeping Beauty, where she's like asleep in the castle or whatever, in the tower or something like that. I'm mixing my fairy tales, I know. And then it's like, oh yeah, the prince come by and give her a kiss. And in reality, it's like, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> the prince comes by and oh, it's her. It's like, what? <laughs> Sleeping Beauty's up. Over the coming months, the two of them planned it all out. Nick would take the bus to Springfield, meet up with him at the cinema, and then they'd pretend to meet for the first time. And while they had the chance, Gypsy could use the opportunity to lose her virginity. I was very excited to meet this person that I'd been talking to for so long. I thought, if he dressed nice, if he said all the right things, and if he was just a kind person, then my mum would think, hey, well, why not? This could be the one. And then that way, we wouldn't have to lie about our relationship anymore. I don't get the feeling that old what's-his-face here, Nick, is going to show up and be particularly nicely dressed. I imagine Nick's going to show up and he's going to look like a bit of a weirdo because he seems like a bit of a weirdo. In March 2015, Gypsy managed to steal $800 in cash from her mother and mailed it to Nick, who bought a bus ticket. He traveled nine hours by bus to Springfield, and Gypsy convinced her mother that they had to go and see the new live-action Cinderella movie at the cinema the next day. Gypsy dressed up as Cinderella in a blue satin Cinderella dress with a curly blonde wig and a tiara, and Nick dressed up in a smart shirt and a blue tie so that he could make a good impression on her mother. <laughs> okay, they, they planned it ahead of time, good. Only later would she realize the biggest flaw in their master plan. We were the only people at the movies, and he didn't have a kid with him, or a girlfriend, or nothing. He's just this guy who's going to see this chick movie. Oh no, yeah, they're just watching live-action Cinderella. <laughs> If you're the dude who's like 25 and like, <laughs> not even in like the shirt and tie and going to the kids movie in the middle of the day, it's not a good idea, dude. Don't do it. If you really want to see the live action Cinderella, please, for, lo for the love of God, just wait till it comes out on Netflix and watch it at home, okay? It'll be a whole lot less weird. Nick walked up to Gypsy and Dee, Dee inside the auditorium and introduced himself. He and Gypsy started talking, but Dee, Dee thought that he was creepy, so she got up and moved away, urging Gypsy to go with her. The Gypsy didn't. Instead, Gypsy told her mum that she had to go to the bathroom. Nick offered to escort her and buy them some popcorn, and as soon as they were away from Dee Dee's watchful gaze, Gypsy and Nick entered the men's bathroom and proceeded to have sex. Afterwards, Gypsy cleaned herself up, got back into her wheelchair, and they met up with Dee Dee, who'd come looking for them. While Nick was buying popcorn, Dee Dee took Gypsy to the bathroom and asked her what she was still doing with Nick. Gypsy insisted that they were just friends, and Dee Dee slapped her for disobeying her, telling her that Nick was a weirdo and a creep, and she didn't want Gypsy to go anywhere near him. Eventually, they joined back up with Nick and finished watching the movie, but for Gypsy, the entire day had been ruined. Quote, it made me feel devastated that it all went wrong. I knew that my mom was never going to let me be happy, have friends, fall in love, get married, have kids, or have a normal life, and I never wanted any more than that. That day convinced Gypsy 
that in order for the two of them to be together, Dee Dee had to die. She and Nick started plotting Dee Dee's murder, with Gypsy researching the various kinds of poisons that they could use. However, it would be too difficult to get their hands on a tasteless, odorless poison, so they abandoned that idea. They also considered just setting fire to the house, but eventually settled on killing Dee Dee with a knife. <laughs> They start with these like complicated plans. It's like, yeah, maybe we can get away with this. It's like, why don't we just fucking stab her? Let's just stab her. It's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> that doesn't sound like the best of plans. And I get the feeling that because we know all of these details and we have all these enormous like lengthy quotes and stuff from this, that it definitely came from a trial, didn't it? This feels like trial stuff. Once Dee Dee was dead, they'd take the $5,000 in cash that Dee Dee kept in the house and use it to get themselves settled, thinking that it should last them a while. $5,000 in cash in their house. <laughs> Jesus, were you a prepper? Initially, Gypsy was going to be the one to murder Dee Dee, but she told Nick that she wouldn't be able to go through with it. So she outright asked him, would you kill my mother for me? According to Nick, he'd argued it at first, but at some point I ended up giving in because I didn't know what else to do. There's nothing I wouldn't do for her. <laughs> I don't know. You know what else you might not want to do? Murder someone. It's like, I didn't know what else to do. That's not an excuse for murder. <laughs> What are you, what's wrong with you, Nick? Nick started then Googling various kinds of knives and tasers that he'd used to murder Dee Dee. He sent Gypsy suggestions, which included a machete, but she told him that she would have to steal it from Walmart and she wouldn't be able to hide a machete in her wheelchair, so she asked him to send her other suggestions instead. Weird story, I've actually bought a machete from Walmart. I went, this was like years ago. 15 years ago? Something like that? 16? 2008? After I left university, went on a big trip with a mate of mine to America. And we were like driving around, seeing the sights. We had a rental car and we went to Walmart and we're like, whoa, this is a big store. They sell everything. They sold a machete for $3. And I was like, fucking having that, aren't I? So we bought this machete. <laughs> it was just sitting in the back of the rental car. And then we were like, well, what are we going to do with this machete? So we just hid it under the spare tire in the back of the rental car. So at some point, someone's going to go through that rental car. There's going to be like, this was obviously years ago now. And there, there would have been a machete hidden under the, hidden under the tire. Yeah, this the spare tire in the back. So, uh, yeah, that's the end of that story. But it's just weird, buying machetes in Walmart. There you go. Three dollars, though. Nick then explained that he needed duct tape to muffle Dee Dee and a taser to immobilize her so that she couldn't fight back when he attacked her. On the 30th of May, two weeks before the murder, Gypsy was no longer sure she still wanted to kill her mother, but then the two of them had a fight about Gypsy's feeding tube. She asked her mother if they could leave the feeding tube removed during their next visit to the ER, but Dee Dee refused. This led to an argument in which Gypsy refused to undergo another operation, claiming that she'd already had the same operation numerous times and that she didn't need it. On the 2nd of June, 2015, Gypsy told Nick that she was 100,000% sure that she wanted to go through with their plan and that she'd finally decided that she wanted to be happy. Nick told her that he was glad and that his evil side, Victor, was excited at the prospect of ending Dee Dee's life. Oh, Nick. Nick, 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 Nick. You weird f***er. Quoting him, Honey, you forgot I am ruthless and my hatred of her will force her to die. It is my evil side doing it. He won't mess up because he enjoys killing. Gypsy then stole the knife from Walmart, got gloves and duct tape ready, even going so far as to pre-cut the duct tape, and apologized because she couldn't get her hands on a taser. She sent Nick another $1,000 to pay for a bus ticket and a room in a local motel in Springfield. Nick told his mother and stepfather that Dee Dee had kicked Gypsy out of the house and that he was going to Springfield to fetch her, and his mother told him that if she thought it was best, she'd trust his judgment. On 7am on the 9th of June, Nick was well on his way to Springfield, and he and Gypsy spent the morning hyping each other up for their future together. To quote, 
I felt like this is a fairy tale and that I was going to be the princess that gets rescued and then I'd be happy in Wisconsin where I'd be loved and I'll have my freedom and I'll have this wonderful new life. But what started as a fairy tale ended as a horror movie. Well, you know it's going to end as a horror movie because by this point you've already decided that you're murdering your mother. And yeah, she sounds like a horrible person. But still, that's not how fairy tale. I mean, again, fairy tales really grim. But like, that's not how Disney fairy tales end, is it? For that entire day, Gypsy acted like nothing was wrong. And that night, she apologized to her mother and told her that she loved her. And the two of them made up, ending their week-long fight. They then spent the evening painting each other's nails a dark pink before Dee Dee explained that her feelings were still hurt after her fight with Gypsy and that she was going to bed. A tearful Gypsy would later recount that the last words my mother said to me was, don't hurt me. On 40 a.m. on the 10th of June, Gypsy sent the following message to Nick. It's go time. Are you ready? She told him that she'd left the knife and the gloves on the porch and the front door was unlocked, so Nick could just slip inside once he got to their house. When he arrived, Nick put on the gloves, picked up the stolen knife, and made his way into the house. Gypsy met him at the door and then rolled her electric wheelchair to the bathroom, closing the door behind her. She got out of the chair, got into a fetal position on the floor, and waited. To quote, I covered my ears so that I wouldn't hear anything. But I still heard my mother scream. And at that point, I thought, hey, I don't want this to happen. I wanted to stop now, but I was too afraid to go and get help. You'd think that hearing a murder is like what you hear on a horror film or something, but it's really not. You can stand watching a horror film, but hearing someone actually being murdered is terrifying. It creates this almost nauseous feeling in your stomach. You can't think. All you know is how afraid you are. After Dee Dee's cries fell silent, Nick walked into the bathroom, still holding the knife and dripping blood onto the bathroom floor. He'd cut his finger and asked Gypsy to help him clean it. Uh-oh. <laughs> There's a lot of DNA coming out of your finger right now, isn't there? Then Nick's evil side ordered Gypsy to go to her bedroom where they had sex. Gypsy claimed that she was happy to go along with it at first, but the sex was painful. And when she asked him to stop, he didn't. Nick would later explain that the sex wasn't pleasurable for either of them, mostly because he was too focused on what they had to do next. Gypsy said that he then ordered her to clean the bloody footprints that had tracked from her mother's room to the bathroom while she was still naked. She went to get towels and a stain-removing carpet spray from the kitchen and cleaned the bloodstains while Nick watched on. She made sure to wipe his fingerprints from the scene and dumped the bloody towels in the garbage. This... <laughs> really? Really? The towels that you're cleaning up his blood on? You just put them in the garbage? You think they're not going to look in there? You gotta burn that shit. You gotta take it with you, take it far away, burn that shit, and throw the ashes in the ocean. Come on. Basic crime. Crime 101 here. The entire time, Nick made sure that he blocked Gypsy's view of her mother's bedroom so she wouldn't have to see Dee Dee's body, and Gypsy later explained that she was grateful to him because she hadn't wanted to remember her mum like that. Nick packed Gypsy's backpack, including some clothes, a birth certificate, medical aid cards, some pain tablets, a spare feeding tube, and the cash, and they took the knife and the bloody gloves along with them. Gypsy put on a wig so that she wouldn't be recognized, and they called for a cab at around 6am and asked the driver to take them to the motel where Nick was staying. They spent two days there while they tried to book a bus ticket to Wisconsin, and Nick told Gypsy the cover story that he told his parents, ensuring that they were both on the same page. Other than that, they mostly just lounged around, took photos and videos of each other, or went to lunch at the Waffle House and had more awkward sex during which Nick would bite Gypsy on the neck and her arms, allegedly because Gypsy had told him that it was a turn-on for her. According to Gypsy, quote, My mind wasn't thinking back to what was at my house. I just kept thinking, I'm free, I'm free. And that excitement of being free and walking. But the looming awareness of what had just happened clouded my mind, so I used Xanax to drown out all my remorse and cares and fears. Quote ends. On the 12th of June, Gypsy and Nick finally managed to book a ticket for both of them to Wisconsin. But before they could leave, they had to decide what they were going to do with the knife and gloves. Um, bruh, dispose of them. 
dispose of them, throw them in the ocean, burn them first. Nick had wanted to take it on the bus with them, but with her limited experience, Gypsy was sure the bus station must have metal detectors like airports do, so she recommended that they should mail it to Wisconsin instead. What are you doing? Just get rid of it. Gypsy wrote her address as the return address and would later explain that they planned on dumping the knife and gloves in a lake in Wisconsin where it would never be found. Bro, find a lake nearby. Where where is Wisconsin? Where are they now? I don't know. Look, you've got to go somewhere that's a giant body of water and dump it in there. While the knife was making its way through the postal system, Gypsy and Nick got back on the bus and spent nine hours to Wisconsin discussing their future. According to Nick, we wanted to have a family together and we wanted to build a life together and stuff. We thought we really had a chance to do it. So we were happy about that. But shortly after they arrived in Wisconsin on the 13th of June, Gypsy told Nick that she was haunted by the fact that her mother's body hadn't been discovered yet. To quote, I wanted my mother found because I felt remorse and I couldn't stand the thought of her just being there. But I needed something alarming that would alarm her friends enough to call the police. So, after some discussion, Gypsy logged onto her mother's Facebook account that Sunday afternoon and made the now infamous Facebook post. And when it didn't look like anyone was taking the post seriously, Gypsy commented on the post again, explaining that Dee Dee had been stabbed and that she'd been sexually assaulted. According to Gypsy, they hadn't thought about coming up with a plausible story regarding what had happened to her. Quote, I thought maybe if people knew I was gone, they would just think I was missing. And missing people go unfound all the time. So I thought that I'd remain a missing person. Yo, you're number one suspect because you're the family. It's always the family. Little did she know that their time together had just started to run out. Happily never after. Back in New Orleans, Gypsy's father Rod was in a panic after one of Dee Dee's sisters informed him that Dee Dee had been murdered and Gypsy was missing. Gypsy's stepmother Christy would later tell journalist Michelle Dean from BuzzFeed that, quote, I was in hysterics thinking Gypsy got brought somewhere and was left to die. Back in Springfield, Dee Dee and Gypsy's friends, Kim and Dave, had organized a GoFundMe to pay for Dee Dee's funeral expenses, and if the worst happened, Gypsy's too. Dee Dee's body had been discovered at around 1am that Monday morning, and by 8am, the police were interviewing all of their friends and neighbors who all gathered on the lawn, desperate to find out what happened to Gypsy. Detective Joseph Fletcher from the Greene County Cybercrimes Task Force had already been tasked with finding out who posted the alarming status update to the DGIP Facebook accounts, and he submitted a request to Facebook asking for information related to that account. Now, here's something you might not know. Facebook has an interactive portal for law enforcement specifically for situations like this. Law enforcement needs either a subpoena or a search warrant, and then they're able to submit a request for information relating to multiple Facebook accounts. Once the information is ready, they'll receive an email, and they can then download a PDF document that contains all the relevant information that they'd requested. <laughs> you know you're a big company when it's like, yeah, we all have an automatic thing for subpoena. You got a subpoena? Okay, you could just get the information, submit it, and then you just download it. <laughs> Someone developed that. Facebook's huge. This includes the email addresses connected to the account, who is listed as friends, who subscribes to them, who posted what, who commented on which posts, as well as the IP addresses of all the devices that are currently logged into the account. Detective Fletcher determined that on the 14th of June, an unknown device logged into the account on several occasions. Detective Fletcher requested information relating to the IP address in question and found out that it was connected to a Time Warner internet connection that was registered to a Nicholas Gojon. Oh, that's the Nick dude who lived in Wakasha County in Wisconsin. That's a lot of W's. Now, around the same time, Gypsy's friend Aaliyah approached the police and explained that Gypsy had an online boyfriend called Nicholas Gojon. These messages included Gypsy's claims that she loved Nick and he was a Prince Charming and that they wanted a life together. The police are being like, uh-oh, she, uh, so, so, they, these guys, these guys, they, they, this is them. Convinced that it somehow kidnapped Gypsy. Oh, okay, yeah, wait, that's a much more obvious. <laughs> is it more obvious? Or do you assume that, I guess you don't know about all the abuse and stuff, right? 
So you'd assume that the Nick guy's the weirdo. And to be fair, that's exactly what you'd see after you read those messages. So no, I'm sorry, I'm completely with the police here. That's the obvious thing, that they think he kidnapped her. That's way more sensible. Detective Steve Hancock. And then he contacted the police in Wakasha County and asked them to check in on little old Nick to find out whether Gypsy was still alive and well. On the night of the 15th of June, Gypsy and Nick were woken up by the sound of police sirens. Several armored vehicles surrounded the house and they watched as several canine units gathered on the lawn, ready to find any trace of Gypsy's remains. Scared, the two of them hid in Nick's closet and Nick had Gypsy repeat their cover story, which didn't explain how Dee Dee actually ended up dead. It's not a very good cover story then, is it? When the police started blasting that Nick was under arrest and should come out with his hands in the air, Gypsy offered to go down first. She quickly got dressed, called the officers, and told them that she was coming out, and then they handcuffed her, asking her whether Nicholas was armed. She told them that he wasn't, that he had kidnapped her, and that she was there of her own free will. The Wachasha County Police took them both to the police station and reported back to the Green County Sheriff's Office that they'd found Gypsy, but they warned something was off. The Green County Sheriff's Office had reported that Gypsy was mentally and physically disabled, yet Gypsy came across as quite intelligent and was capable of walking on her own. They had taken her to hospital for a checkup and some blood tests, and the medical reports had come back clear, noting that apart from needing a new pair of glasses, Gypsy was in perfect health. Gypsy was taken to a waiting room, Nick was taken to an interview room, and both of them were told that the detectives were flying in from Springfield to meet with them. Gypsy took a nap on the couch and eventually started a conversation with the warrant officer who was guarding her. They were both Harry Potter fans, and Gypsy told him all about her and her mother's adventures, her trips to Disney World and Warner Brothers Studios, her charity work, the places she wanted to visit, and her questionable boyfriend Nick, who'd just been arrested, though she claimed she didn't know why. Gypsy, what are you doing? Didn't we just describe you as somewhat intelligent? That warrant officer is not just standing there to be like a passive guard. If you tell them shit, that's going to be used against you. Wait for your f***ing lawyer. Use your brain. Not once did she bring up any of her illnesses, except for mentioning that she had spent a lot of time in different hospitals, which enabled her to travel to different cities every few months. Eventually, Detective Hancock arrived at around 10pm that night and started asking her basic questions. What's your name? Where do you grow up? Do you have any other family? How old are you? Gypsy explained the mix-up with her birth certificate, and then Detective Hancock said that as far as she was aware, she was 19, but that she had a Medicaid card that said she was 23. She didn't know what her social security number was, and all of her documents were still at Nick's house. She also explained that she had been homeschooled and that her education was kind of scattered, that she only had a third-grade education, uh, but that she could read and write just fine, despite the fact that her spelling wasn't exactly up to standard. Then Detective Hancock started the interrogation by reading Gypsy her Miranda rights, or to use the official term, the Miranda warning. According to Wikipedia, the Miranda warning is a type of notification customarily given by police to criminal suspects in police custody or in custodial interrogation, advising them of their right to silence and, in effect, protection from self-incrimination. <laughs> Wait, so the stuff she said before to the warrant officer, is that admissible because she hadn't been read her Miranda rights yet? Again, I don't really know. I'm just basing my knowledge of American law from like TV shows. They're not exactly the same as the ones you hear on television, but basically Miranda warning states that anyone suspected of a crime has a right to legal counsel and is allowed to request legal assistance before they answer any and all questions posed to them by the police. Ideally, the police want to get a confession before their suspect lawyers up, but here's a bit of free legal advice from our basement lawyer Liam Bird. If a police officer asks to speak to you down at the station, lawyer up. If a police officer starts asking you probing questions, lawyer up. If a police officer wants to speak to you about your friend who's been arrested, lawyer up. If a police officer even looks at you suspiciously for more than one nanosecond, lawyer f***ing up. Yes, it doesn't make you look more guilty, it makes you look smart. Even if you've done nothing wrong, just do it. 
From the moment Gypsy's interrogation officially starts, it's obvious that Detective Hancock knows that Gypsy was involved in carrying out Dee Dee's murder. Uh-oh. For the entirety of her interrogation, he comes across as an understanding but strict father who knows that Gypsy has messed up and is giving her the opportunity to come clean. Oh, Gypsy, don't, like, you, I, like, I don't want you to go free or whatever. Although, I don't know, like, you obviously deserve some sort of punishment, but there's some pretty massive extenuating circumstances here. But, like, don't fall for this. You, you, are you really gonna fall for this? This impression is only reinforced when he moves closer to Gypsy and explains that she needs to come clean before all of her life snowball around her and get out of control. Then to ensure there's no doubt about what he's referring to, he says, Your mum's dead. She's passed away. She's deceased. Now, what I want to ask you is, did you have any involvement in this? At first, Gypsy acts confused, then shakes her head and bursts out in tears. Detective Hancock calmly but firmly shuts her down, telling her that he knows she made a mistake, but that, quote, You can rewrite your story tonight. I don't think that you're a bad person, but what I do think is that there are some things that you need to talk about and why these things happened. You're in a situation where you can help yourself right now because the more and more you let that snowball roll down that hill and get bigger, it's going to explode. <laughs> Any lawyer, her lawyer be like, no, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. Don't say anything. At first, Gypsy continued to deny everything, but eventually, Detective Hancock got Gypsy to tell him her story. He probably used that read technique. I made a whole video about the read technique, which is how the police get you to confess to shit, even if you didn't do it. And it's kind of wild. So always lawyer up, because just, just, always, just, lawyer, 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 always. Gypsy told Detective Hancock that her mum was overprotective and wanted her to stay a little girl forever. She explained how, after she'd introduced Nick to her mum, she and her mum would get into frequent fights about him. Dee Dee didn't approve of him, told Gypsy that Nick seemed dangerous, and that he reminded her of Jeffrey Dahmer, to which Detective Hancock said, and she was absolutely right. You know, she was right. Apparently, Nick didn't like this, and he told Gypsy that he didn't appreciate her mum dragging his name through the mud. Gypsy explained that that night, Nick had only come for a visit, and then they were just going to hang out. But when they were getting ready for bed, Nick had pushed Gypsy into the bathroom, locked her inside, and then went and murdered Dee Dee. Afterwards, he had Gypsy clean up the blood, then sexually assaulted her in a bedroom, explaining that it had hurt. Detective Hancock pointed at the yellowing bruises on her neck and a clear, angry bite mark on her arm, asking what it was. Gypsy explained that they were hickeys, to which Detective Hancock replied that he was a man and did never bite a girl that hard on the arm and call it a hickey. Yeah, a hickey isn't where you bite. Isn't a hickey where you, like, suck? And then that causes, like, the, the, the blood to rush to the capillaries, which leaves not like a bruise, but a red mark. Right? <laughs> isn't that what it is? I'm gonna look that up just to be sure. <laughs> look up. Hickey, or sometimes referred to a love bite in British English, indeed, is a bruise or bruise-like mark caused by kissing or sucking skin, usually on the neck. There you go. It's sucking. It's not biting. Jesus. <laughs> Detective Angok had Gypsy go through the events of that night again, and Gypsy explained how she'd been locked in the bathroom, what she'd done with the towels after she'd done cleaning up the blood, and how they'd packed a bag and prepared to leave for Wisconsin. At no point had she been aware that Nick had planned to murder her mother that night. Then Detective Hancock left and told Detective Angela Maholi that she could start interrogating Nick. Bro, they're just going to go through your computer and be like, oh, look, all this evidence you wrote down about wanting to murder your mum. Ah, <laughs> Come on. Come on, use your brains. Just like Gypsy, Nick had been waiting for hours and was visibly relieved, if a little wary, when Detective Maholi entered the interrogation room. Detective Maholi cheerfully greeted Nick, asked if he was doing well, and comes across as just a kind, caring person who you could easily confide in. Oh my god, the police. This is so... Like, 
it's just so skilled. It's just such a skill. This dude's just like, let's fucking go. He's like, all right, mate, how you doing? Yeah, yeah, tell me everything. And you'll be like, yeah, okay, <laughs> you seem cool. <laughs> Amazing. Detective Maholi read him his Miranda rights, had him sign a document explaining that he understood the contents of the document, and then asked him about his relationship with Gypsy. Nick told her the basics of the relationship and then explained that a week or two earlier, he'd grown worried when he couldn't reach Gypsy. He traveled to Springfield to check on her and then ran into her in town. Gypsy told him that Dee Dee had kicked her out of the house and she was now living on the street. They then went to his hotel room where they stayed for a while, bought two bus tickets, and then went back to Wisconsin. Detective Maholi calmly told Nick that she didn't believe him. She told him that she'd spoken to Gypsy, and Gypsy had told them everything. Things they knew were true. But now Nick was telling them lies. Then Maholi told Nick that if he truly loved Gypsy, he'd tell them the truth because he was doing Gypsy an injustice by lying to the police. So he did. <laughs> ah! Liar, my dude! Liar! He told them that Gypsy had asked him to kill Dee Dee. He admitted that they'd planned it together for months, calling it Plan B. He explained that Gypsy had stolen the knife and had prepared the gloves and duct tape, and that he had originally planned on raping Dee Dee before settling on having sex with Gypsy instead. Dude, you don't. Why would you even admit to that? <laughs> they can't possibly know that. Why are you just adding to your crimes? Well, I, I was going to rape her, but I didn't. Why the f would you say that? <laughs> After Nick finished his story, Detective Hancock confronted Gypsy and told her that he now knew that she'd helped Nick to plan her mother's murder. The jig was up, and they were both going to be charged with first-degree murder. Then he left the room, leaving Gypsy to process the news. 28 seconds after the door closed behind him, Gypsy got up and yelled, I want a lawyer. Please, sir, I want a liar. <laughs> <laughs> You're a bit late, aren't you? Jesus! Disenchanted. Gypsy Rose Blanchard and Nicholas Gojon were both charged with the first-degree murder early on the 16th of June 2015, and a young public defender named Michael Stanfield took on the case. During a press conference later that morning, Green County Sheriff Jim Arnott would open the conference with the words referenced at the beginning of this script. Things are not always as they appear. At this point, people were still convinced that Gypsy had been a victim as well, but Sheriff Arnott explained that the evidence they had collected so far suggested that Dee Dee and Gypsy had been defrauding people for years, and that Gypsy had plotted her mother's murder alongside her boyfriend's Nicholas Goadjohn. Well, that seems like exactly what has been happening. This is a tragic, tragic event surrounded by mystery and public deception. Gypsy can walk without assistance or a wheelchair, and she could do that very well. He told the public that they were aware that a GoFundMe had been set up to pay for Dee Dee's funeral expenses, but since they were considering adding fraud charges, they'd suggested that public shouldn't have given the family any more money. Christy Blanchard, Gypsy's stepmother, would later explain that she was still in Wisconsin when she called me. At that time, she still wasn't trusting anyone. She was still not telling her lawyer everything. Then we went in the courtroom for a preliminary hearing, and that's when they showed all the text messaging. And when they said they were presenting that, she turned around and looked at us with fear in her eyes. I guess she didn't think that they were going to pull all of those messages up. Rod and Christie drove up to Springfield and met with Mike Stanfield, Gypsy's lawyer. He had the medical reports of the night Gypsy had been arrested and told Rod and Christie that there was medically nothing wrong with Gypsy. He told them that he suspected that Gypsy was a victim of Munchausen's by proxy. There we go. I know about that because of the TV show House. Like, it's where you want the attention of people and doctors and stuff, but not for yourself. You don't pretend to be sick. Someone you know is sick, like your kids or whatever. And then you get that attention via them. It's weird. And that he was going to do everything in his power to prove it. According to the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM, Munchausen disorder, or fictitious disorder, occurs when a person fakes an illness in order to attract attention or sympathy. 
When the person causes someone else, usually their child or someone in their care, to experience a fake illness, it's called Munchausen's by proxy. In this case, however, Dee Dee's actions can also be classified as malingering Munchausen's by proxy, which occurs when someone fakes the symptoms of an illness in someone else for material benefits. Oh my god, <laughs> it's complicated. According to journalist Michelle Dean's article, Dee Dee wanted her daughter to be sick, Gypsy wanted her mum murdered, malingering isn't considered to be a mental illness, it's just plain fraud. As Rod and Christie listened to Mike explain Gypsy's case, they felt reassured that the young lawyer had her best interests at heart. Gypsy was facing either a life sentence or the death penalty, so they had to do whatever they could to ensure that she didn't spend the rest of her life locked away in yet another prison. Rod and Christie were both able to meet with Gypsy and basically told her, Honey, the time for lying is over. From now on, you've got to be honest and tell us the whole truth. Yeah, this is your only out. Like, you're fucked. You're going to prison. Like, there's no question. But you've got to go for those hardcore, extenuating circumstances of basically your mum being mega abusive to you and hope that the courts, like, what's his face? Uh, Nick, the boyfriend, he's going away forever. He's getting the death penalty, like, for sure. But she has a pretty massive card to play here. So she did. Good, giving Mike everything he needed to start looking deeper into her past. Because Dee Dee had Gypsy declared mentally incompetent shortly after her 18th birthday, it took Mike a year before he could access her medical history, and even then, it didn't include everything. Gypsy's medical history was a compilation of all the lies that Dee Dee had told to different doctors over Gypsy's entire lifetime. Every doctor took Dee Dee at her word, noted that Gypsy's medical history was incomplete, and treated her anyway. When they disagreed with Dee Dee's claims, she would leave their office in a half claim they didn't know what they were doing, and then consult a new doctor who she could manipulate into performing yet another operation on Gypsy. In August 2007, Dee Dee took the 16-year-old Gypsy to a Dr. Bernardo Flasterstein, a pediatric neurologist. She told Dr. Flasterstein that the 14-year-old Gypsy had been diagnosed with muscular dystrophy and cerebral palsy, and he performed various tests on her, including a muscle biopsy, an MRI, an EEG, and blood tests. They all came back normal. During a follow-up visit in 2007, he told Dee Dee that there's no reason why Gypsy shouldn't be able to walk on her own. He even had Gypsy stand up and confirmed that she was more than capable of carrying her own weight. Dee Dee didn't agree with his assessment and left the office in a huff, taking Gypsy with her. <laughs> she just stood up. She just stood up. He's like, I don't agree with you. She's standing. She's standing next to you. In his report, Dr. Flasterstein wrote, The mother is not a good historian. Analyzing all the facts, and after talking to her previous pediatrician, there is a strong possibility of Munchausen by proxy, with maybe some underlying unknown etiology to explain for her symptoms. End quote. Dr. Flasterstein then tried to track down Gypsy's other doctors in Springfield to confirm his suspicions and was told that he should treat Gypsy and Dee Dee with golden gloves. What does that mean? The other doctors didn't believe his claims, and Dr. Flasterstein didn't do anything else about it, believing that if he did report Dee Dee to social services like he was supposed to do, nothing would be done about it since the entire medical community had been manipulated into believing Dee Dee's version of events. Dude, you should report that, though. It doesn't matter what they might not do anything. That's up to them. Don't you need to get that burden off of you? And just be like, okay, I, I did my thing. It's your problem now. If you don't do something about it, at least my conscience is more clear. Quoting again, we have a system, which is a big integrated system, that decided to adopt her and bring her in to support her. So many people looking at her, knowing her history, knowing what she was going through, knowing what she went through. I would have been rejected on the spot. But even if he had reported her, Dee Dee would have known about it and would have escaped with Gypsy before the authorities could close in on them. According to Mike, Dee Dee requested copies of all of Gypsy's medical reports so she knew that Dr. Flasterstein was onto her. They never went back to the hospital. 
All of these records helped Mike convince the prosecution that there were mitigating circumstances in Gypsy's case, and they changed the first-degree murder charges to Class A felony murder in the second degree, and acting in concert with another who knowingly caused the death of Dee Dee Blanchard. Yeah, okay, I, I completely agree. There are so there are mitigating circumstances here, and this seems fair. According to Gypsy, she was in a pretty dark place at this time and had resolved that if she was going to be put in prison for the rest of her life, she was going to bring her life to an end. However, Mike came to meet with her and told her that the prosecution was willing to enter a plea bargain with her. She would have to plead guilty, and in exchange, she'd receive a lesser sentence. That way, she would be released by the time she was 32 and would be allowed to have a fresh start at life. Gypsy agreed, and on the 5th of July 2016, she was sentenced to spend the next 10 years in prison with the possibility of being paroled after having served 85% of her sentence. I have to say that that honestly feels pretty fair. Like, I think she does need to go to prison for some time because, obviously, she was in concert with someone who murdered. But that seems pretty fair. What about Nick? Right to jail. Right away. Oh, Nick's fucked. He's going to prison forever. Or a uh, death penalty. In the years following their arrest, Nick had granted just as many interviews as Gypsy had. During all of them, he'd stuck to his story, explaining that they'd planned Dee Dee's murder together, that he loved Gypsy, and that he only wanted to be with her. It also meant that a lot of people felt that he'd been manipulated by Gypsy, especially once it got out that he'd been diagnosed with autism as a child. However, it was pointed out on several occasions that we had to wait until the murder trial before we could pass final judgment on his actions that night. Nicholas Gojon's murder trial started on the 13th of November 2018 and was presided over by Judge David Jones. During the opening statements, Assistant Green County Prosecutor Nathan Chapman explained that killing Dee Dee might have been Gypsy's idea, but that Nick was the one who thought about it for more than a year, who decided what he was going to wear, what he'd need, and how he was going to kill her. Public defender Andrew Mead agreed that Nick had killed Dee Dee, but explained that Nick didn't have the mental capacity to be held accountable for his actions. He'd been born with his umbilical cord wrapped around his neck and had been deprived of oxygen, and doctors warned his parents that this could result in Nick experiencing developmental delays. They'd also been told that it was possible that mentally he'd always be a 15-year-old. Nick grew up in a single-parent household, was diagnosed with autism shortly after he started attending school, and spent most of his time alone on the internet since his mother was always working. Shortly after finishing high school, he'd worked for a pizza shop and was responsible for waving a sign in front of the store. At one point, he'd been promoted to work in the kitchen, but this led to the owners firing him since he tended to drop pizzas. At the age of 21, he applied for and was granted disability benefits because he'd been diagnosed with autism as a child. His parents explained that he'd only had one confirmed girlfriend, though he claimed he'd had two. His most serious relationship to date was his online relationship with Gypsy. Public Defender Bede then went on to explain that when Nick heard what Gypsy was going through, he was happy to go along with her murder plot and to help to free her from her mother's control. And the biggest reason for this is the fact that he had autism. According to Public Defender Mead, at the end of the day, you're going to understand the dynamics of this case, that Nick wasn't able to formulate the necessary mental state to commit murder in the first degree. The prosecution called multiple witnesses to explain the events of the day, including the two taxi drivers who drove Nick to and from Gypsy's house, the various police officers involved in the investigation, and the forensic experts who'd analyzed the evidence presented at trial. Gypsy was also asked to tell her side of the story, but since I already covered her version of events in this script, I'm not going to discuss her time on the stand. One of the most notable witnesses during the trial was Corporal Angela Maholi, the detective who'd interrogated Nick on the night of his arrest. Based on the motions discussed before the start of the trial, the defense was of the opinion that Detective Maholi had knowingly lied to Nick during the interrogation by telling him that Gypsy had told them the truth when, in fact, she hadn't told them anything. Wait, is that not allowed? Aren't they allowed to do that? Isn't that, like, just one of the smart ways of getting a confession? Like, it's like, oh, they already grasped on you, so you've got to do yourself a favor and grasp on them. Like, isn't that 
how it works? Is that not allowed? I thought that'd be totally allowed. This then led to Nick implicating himself in the murder because Detective Mahoney had told him that if he loved Gypsy, he'd tell them the truth. Assistant Prosecutor Chapman had Detective Mahuli explain the various interrogation methods she had been traded, and she told the court that you could either be kind to the suspect or be more aggressive, aka the good guy bad guy approach. Mahoney preferred the good guy approach and would treat the suspect she is interrogating with kindness, enabling her to build a rapport with them before she starts her questioning. Detective Mahoney went on to explain that, quote, the goal is to just get the facts of whatever you are investigating. Excellent, excellent place to start as a police officer. Don't get railroad, just go in there and get the facts. And then the court can work out guilt. The court watched Nick's interrogation in full. And afterwards, Nick's attorney, Dwayne Perry, asked Detective Mahoney if she'd been trained to interview people with autism, if she'd noticed that he had trouble understanding what the word coercion meant when she read him his Miranda rights, if she'd known that he'd been diagnosed with autism before she initiated the interview, if she'd noticed that he was tired at the time, if she commonly interviewed people at midnight, and if she knowingly lied to Nick during the interview. Mahoney said no, she hadn't been trained specifically to interview neurodivergent people. Lots of people had trouble understanding their Miranda rights, and it's not uncommon for her to have to explain it numerous times. At the time, she hadn't known that he had been diagnosed with autism, since she only spoke to his mother later that day, and she was the only one who told Detective Mahoney that he'd been diagnosed with autism. Yes, she'd noticed he seemed tired, but only because Nick had specifically mentioned it. It wasn't unusual for her to interview suspects at night, but no, she doesn't have a preference as to when she'd interview someone. And yes, she'd knowingly lied to Nick to convince him to tell her the truth. Okay, sounds like very straightforward. She's answering all the questions nicely. When it was Assistant Prosecutor Chapman's turn to question her, she explained that Nick hadn't come across as autistic, so she treated him just as she would any other suspect. It wasn't unusual for her to interview someone late at night either, since they want to interview someone as soon as possible after a crime takes place. And yes, she was legally allowed to lie to suspects during an interrogation. Good, I knew it. That's why you need a lawyer, because they'll be like, that's a lie. Don't answer that. They could be lying. Need some proof. Don't answer that. Don't answer that. So remain silent. Lawyer, lawyer, lawyer! Detective Fletcher was then called to the stand and explained how the police had found Nick and Gypsy. He also explained that after they were arrested, the police had obtained over 4,000 pages worth of information relating to the various Facebook profiles that they had created to talk to each other. Most interestingly, Assistant Prosecutor Chapman had Detective Fletcher explain that in May 2014, Nick had told a friend called Ali that Gypsy wanted to kill her mum to quote, she said she wants to see how our original plan goes first with me meeting her and her mum and such, and I guess she said she wanted only to do it as a last resort. He then asked Ali, How crazy do you think Gypsy is? You won't hurt my feelings or anything. I really want to know, though, since I just obviously can tell she is, I just can't seem to put in words how crazy I think she is. This is just people's text messages so they don't think about how it reads. <laughs> it's a nightmare. I know I suppose situations change people, though, to where others are willing to do things that other people aren't, and obviously my mum, even though she has been hard on me overall, has been a very good mother to me, so I couldn't ever do it to her. And the only reason I can understand it with her mum is because how unreasonably poor her mum treats her, but since it is a last resort thing, who knows, maybe it won't even have to happen. <laughs> okay. Ali sympathized with Nick and told him that she'd only consider killing her mum if her mum was going to kill her first, but overall, it didn't sound like she believed his story. In fact, the two of them were chatting before he left for Gypsy's house that night, and he told Ali that Gypsy was running away from home and would be now living with him. 
When Michael Costello, a computer forensic analyst with the Springfield Police Department, took to the stand, he explained that he had been responsible for analyzing the various text messages that Nick and Gypsy sent to each other during the course of their relationship. He explained that they often told each other that they loved, worshipped, and adored the other person, referred to each other as their twin flame soulmate, called each other honey and dear, and would often refer to each other using the names of their alter egos. The court, and me unfortunately, then listened for two hours as Michael Costello read almost 800 super cringy text messages to the court. Did you really listen to these all ever? <laughs> oh god, this guy must have had a nightmare just like reading this shit out. It's like, so, it's so awkwardly written. Gives me like, what is that? Do you think he's like, hi, how are you doing? Smiley face emoji, heart emoji. <laughs> On the 30th of May, Gypsy asked Nick if they could postpone Plan B for 10 months because she wanted to have her feeding tube taken out so that she could fall pregnant someday. She also worried that she wouldn't be able to receive the medical care she believed she needed in Big Bend since it didn't have a hospital and then suggested that they should move to Milwaukee instead. When Nick told her that he'd prefer to stay in Wachasa, Gypsy reassured him that they'd start looking for apartments for the two of them since they still had the $5,000 that they'd planned on taking after they killed her mum. Then Nick followed up that explaining that he couldn't wait to watch Fifty Shades of Grey with her and they should try having anal sex as soon as possible. <laughs> Nick, what are you? <laughs> so yeah, let's go find that apartment. And then we're going to watch Fifty Shades of Grey and Victor's going to come for you. It's like, oh God. <laughs> Nick, you weirdo. These messages and Gypsy's testimony during the trial painted a clear image of Nick and Gypsy's messed-up relationship. The two often fought, and then Nick would hurl insults at Gypsy before blaming his evil side for his actions. It's obvious that he felt insecure in their relationship. He'd get angry if Gypsy didn't respond to his messages for some time, wanted him to refer to her as dear and honey in every message so that he could feel worshipped. And if she said something that displeased him, he'd threaten to break it off with Gypsy and tell her that he'd kill himself, which would result in her calling him and apologizing for hurting his tiny feelings before she jumped into the role of daddy's little good girl, aka her childlike alter ego Kitty. Now look, I'm no professional, but that reeks of narcissistic manipulation. One of the biggest indicators of this is his tendency to put the blame for his less acceptable actions on his evil side. It seemed like Gypsy thought it was all part of the act, a role that Nick was playing. But what is more disturbing, though, is how his evil side supposedly saw that night going. Nick planned what he would wear that night, down to the last detail, finally settling on a scary shirt with evil clowns in it so that he would scare Dee Dee. He would also ask Gypsy questions, like if her mum was a heavy or a light sleeper, whether she slept in her back or on her stomach, whether the floor squeaked or not, and told Gypsy what to prepare, explaining that it was his evil side who wanted to know. During his police interrogation, Nick would tell Detective Mahoney that he originally planned on sexually assaulting Dee Dee before he murdered her, but that he wasn't interested in violating her once she was dead since he had no interest in necrophilia. <laughs> Bro, why are you bringing up all these details that we don't need to know? It's like, no, 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 I definitely want to have sex with her after she's dead. Why would you? Sh no one was thinking that! <laughs> Considering that necrophilia is a big word for someone who doesn't know what coercion meant, Detective Mahoney asked him how he knew what necrophilia was, and Nick explained that he usually googled new words that he came across in pop culture. During her interrogation and later interviews, Gypsy would explain that when Nick told her of his original plan, she'd offered that he could assault her instead since she didn't want him to do that to her mum. In the days leading up to the murder, he'd expand on this fantasy, telling Gypsy that she had to buy some bondage tape and that she had to shave herself for him and that he wanted her to be naked when he opened the bathroom door and that she had to paint her nails red and wear red lipstick. 
Nick, you're a weird dude, my dude. Like, what the fuck? Apologies, that's what his evil side wanted. Of course, of course. What a brilliant offence. What a big brain. Nick then plans on having both vaginal and anal sex with Gypsy while her mum's dead body was in the next room, and when she suggested that it could wait until they got to the motel room, he insisted that his evil side demanded it. In the end, Gypsy had to settle for dark pink nail polish and a pink lip gloss because that was all she had, and Nick told her that once he arrived at her house, she had to understand that it wasn't him but his evil side, and that she had to listen to what he said and refer to him as Sir. If she did everything he asked of her, his evil side wouldn't hurt her. Once she was locked in the bathroom, she had to block her ears and wasn't allowed to come out until his evil side came to fetch her so that he could sexually assault her. Once they finished having painful and unsatisfactory sex, Nick then told Gypsy that he wanted her to be naked when she cleaned up the blood because it turned him on. He then decided what she'd wear and packed her clothes for her before ordering her a cab. You're a weirdo, dude. Like, what the f***? <laughs> the defense seemingly ignored all of this and asked Mr. Costello if it'd say their exchanges were reminiscent of 15-year-olds since Nick was supposedly mentally delayed. Mr. Costello said that he honestly couldn't say. The prosecution countered this by asking if 15-year-olds usually discussed BDSM and their sexual fantasies over text message, and he said no. On the third day of the trial, the defense called a clinical psychologist called Dr. Kent Franks to the stand and asked him to explain what autism meant in an attempt to prove that Nick was mentally disabled and could easily have been manipulated by Gypsy. He was also asked to testify about the various tests he'd conducted on Nick, and he explained that Nick had an IQ of 82, which is considered to be low average. All of the tests he'd conducted confirmed that Nick was indeed autistic, and he didn't have good judgment and would need substantial support and supervision if he was going to be successful in life. Another clinical psychologist named Dr. Robert Denny was called to testify on behalf of the prosecution and explain that he'd evaluated Nick while he was in prison and had watched security camera footage of Nick at the time of the murder. He agreed with Dr. Frank's diagnosis, but explained that Nick didn't show any of the traits that Dr. Denny would associate with someone with autism. He was able to make eye contact with people, came across as jovial during conversation, and was able to joke with the clerk at the bus station, indicating that he was more than able to pick up on social cues. He was comfortable in large crowds, didn't lose his temper when things didn't go his way, and generally came across as a neurotypical, normal guy. Dr. Denny also explained all of the tests that he had performed that indicated that Nick wasn't mentally impaired in any way. In conclusion, he had autism and some learning disabilities, but he was more than capable of making his own decisions and judging between right and wrong. Yeah, I don't think that, like, Nick doesn't have a good excuse here. Like, uh, Gypsy has massive extenuating circumstances. Uh, Nick is just a murderer, and I think he's going to go to prison forever, where he belongs. In their closing arguments, Assistant Prof. Prosecutor Chapman pointed out that the story of how Dee Dee Blanchard had been murdered eventually became the story of how Gypsy Rose had managed to free herself from her mother's control. But he also reminded the jury that Gypsy's story didn't just have one bad guy, it had two. He went on to explain that yes, Gypsy had been horribly abused, yes, it had been Gypsy's idea to kill her mother, and yes, Gypsy had helped plan the murder. But the fact is, Nick is the one who'd stabbed Dee Dee 17 times, not Gypsy. To quote, We have to be careful and separate out what is collaboration versus manipulation. Because there could be a sense that because Gypsy was the one that had asked the defendant to murder Dee Dee, somehow she'd manipulated the defendant into killing her mum. No, I really don't think so. I think he was a bad dude, and he wanted to kill her, and he just killed her. Simple. Deserves to go to prison for a really long time. He pointed out that Gypsy had been honest about her plan to murder Dee Dee from the beginning, and Nick had agreed to it. At no point did she lie about her reasons for wanting her mother dead. Continuing to quote, And if anything was evident from the dynamic of their relationship, Nicholas Gojon was not made to ever do anything Nicholas Gojon didn't want to do. 
Was Gypsy mistreated? Absolutely. Is the defendant some knight that's coming in to defend her? During the interrogation, how many times did you hear the defendant mention, oh, I was rescuing her, I was saving her, I was freeing her? I can tell you, zero. In the text messages leading up to the murder, how many times did you see him make any reference to, I'm coming to get you, just hang in there, you're going to be free soon, I could do this. Just how many times did you see it? Zero. Instead, you see, I expect you to be wearing red lipstick when I get there, and when I come to get you from the bathroom after I've murdered your mum, you better be naked. All of the things we've looked at, all of the texts, all of the web history, can you tell from any of that that he has high-functioning autism? He's not doing anything different than someone else who's planning a murder, taking steps to incapacitate the victim, taking steps in case you're caught to have a story. His mild autism changes nothing. When Attorney Perry started his closing argument for the defense, he explained that Gypsy was willing to do anything to get out from under her mother's control and that she'd used Nick to get what she wanted. He further goes on to argue that all of the details surrounding the murder plot goes to show their naivete and immaturity, their alter egos, the role-playing, mailing the knife to Nick's house, taking a taxi to and from the murder scene, not bothering to use aliases when traveling, and Gypsy's assumption that the world will simply just forget about her. Quoting, This case has to be one of the most unique cases you'll ever see in a homicide. In some ways, every person involved in this case is a victim. Dee Dee certainly victimized Gypsy in horrible ways. Gypsy manipulated Nick, a low-functioning person with autism, and then Gypsy pressures Nick into committing a homicide against her mother. Nick was so completely in love with her and so obsessed with her that he would do anything. And Gypsy knew that. All evidence in this case demonstrates that Nicholas Gojon has a low IQ. The simple fact of the matter is, Nicholas Gojon did not have the capacity for cool reflection. Nick is not guilty of first-degree murder because he simply lacked the ability to liberate. Uh, if I'm in the jury, I'm like, no, 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 no. This, this is an attempt at a defense, but it is a weak defense. The trial came to an end after just four days, and the jury was asked to decide whether Nick was guilty of first-degree murder, secondary murder, or manslaughter. After deliberating for only two hours, the jury found that Nicholas Gojon was guilty of both first-degree murder and armed criminal action. Uh-oh. First-degree murder plus armed criminal action, that's going to be the aggravating thing to the first-degree murder that could possibly get you the death penalty if I remember previous episodes of this show right. Right? Just as it done for most of the trial, Nick sat impassively as Judge Jones read the verdict and didn't show any reaction. In February 2019, he was sentenced to life imprisonment for killing Dee Dee and received 25 years on top of that for the armed criminal charge. Okay, so he's never getting out of prison, basically. Let it go. After her arrest, Gypsy had weekly visits with the therapist and they helped her work through all the lies that she'd been told and to accept her responsibility for her role in her mother's murder. They also had to recondition her regarding what is right and what is wrong, what is reality, what is fiction, and helped her to realize that a relationship with Nick wasn't real. In some ways, he was just as controlling as her mother. During her time in prison, she granted numerous interviews to tell her story, and the difference between the girl in the interrogation room and the woman in the interviews is striking. She now has long, healthy, dark hair, wears makeup, has put on weight, something that a lawyer said was unusual since inmates usually lose weight in prison. You can almost see her mature over time, going from a chirpy, happy child at the time of her arrest to a giggly teen who was learning how to do her hair, her makeup, and was making friends. And when she spoke to Dr. Phil in 2017, Gypsy came across as a serious, if slightly bitter adult, who takes full responsibility for her actions. But she seemed far older than her 26 years. Gypsy told 2020 in January 2018 that, I feel like I'm more free in prison than living with my mum, because now I'm allowed to live just like a normal woman. She's had her feeding tube removed, got new prescription glasses, and now sports a new set of teeth. 
Rod and Christy have supported her all the way, and even though he feels guilty for not being there when she was little, Rod is doing his best to build a stronger relationship with Gypsy and to be there for her now. Good for you, Rod. I like you more and more. On the 29th of September, 2023, Gypsy was granted, oh, that's super recently, parole, and was released on the 28th of December, 2023. That's mega recently. That's like last week when I'm recording. She'd gotten married while in prison, and after her release, she was reunited with Rod, Christy, and her half-siblings, and her husband. Someone who marries someone in prison like that, though, that's that, that's that. I feel like that's a bit weird. I don't feel like that's a great, strong start for a relationship. She plans on becoming an advocate for other victims of Munchausen's by proxy, but for now, she's simply enjoying her freedom, getting her hair and nails done, enjoying the sun, enjoying her very first New Year's kiss, and soaking in the love of a large and loving family. I'd like to end this script by quoting Aaliyah Woodmancy, who said... I feel like, as sad as it may sound, Gypsy's story really does finally have a happy ending. I agree. Like, she did something bad. She had a horrible situation. She served her time, did her did her time, seemed seemingly very nicely, and then she leaves rehabilitated. I think that is the ideal outcome for a prison system. And it's not something you see very often, so I would say it's a happy ending. Dismembered Appendices I really can't say more about this case that hasn't already been said or been touched on, but... Number one, according to Michelle Dean, there was a vaudeville child star in the 1920s named Gypsy Rose Lee, whose early life was the basis for the Broadway musical Gypsy. In the musical, Gypsy's mum lies about her age and forces her to perform so that she could reap the benefits. The similarities between their stories are eerily similar. God, that's weird. It's just a coincidence, but it's still weird. Number two, watching murder trials isn't exactly fun. They can be very boring and repetitive, but if it wasn't for the fact that Simon pays me to do this and court trials are one of the best sources of information on a criminal case, I'd prefer to watch a documentary on the case instead. However, Judge Davis Jones totally made this trial. Usually judges come across as being aloof and cold, but Judge Jones greets every witness with a smile, joked with them, and reminded me of this kindly chubby uncle at the family get-together that sneaks the kids candy and gifts. <laughs> Sounds like a legend, to be honest. Number three, during the trial, the defense tried to argue that Mahoney shouldn't have been allowed to lie to Nick during the interrogation. I was pretty sure that there were some things that police couldn't lie about, and according to Liam, police in the UK aren't allowed to mislead a subject by implying that they have evidence that they do not have. But according to the Innocence Project, the same is not true in the US. It is almost always legal for police to lie during interrogations. Police have long been prohibited from using physical force during interrogations, but they're still allowed to use a variety of powerful psychological ploys to extract confessions from people. Number four. During the trial, it was mentioned that Gypsy and Nick considered themselves to be twin flame soulmates. When I heard this, I immediately said, what? Since we're currently watching a documentary on Netflix called Escaping Twin Flames, which tells the story of how a couple named Jeff and Shalia Ayan turned their organization, Twin Flames Universe, into a cult by promising people that they'd help to find their one true love and scammed people out of millions of dollars. Oh my god, I want to see that. <laughs> That's on Netflix? I'm definitely going to see that. Number five. And while we're on the topic, Hulu's eight-part miniseries, The Act, is based on Gypsy's story. I didn't watch it while working on this script because I wanted to stick to the facts of the case, but I binge-watched it after I originally submitted the script, and although I didn't like the ending, it gives you an idea of what was going on in that house while still downplaying a lot of the abuse. Number six. On the 1st of January 2024, Gypsy posted a video thanking her 5.8 million Instagram followers and 6 million TikTok followers for their ongoing support. Oh my lord, you're going to be making some money. Her book, released Confessions on the Eve of Freedom, is set to be released on the 9th of January 2024, and a lifetime docuseries, The Prison Confessions of Gypsy Rose Blanchard, is set to premiere on the 5th of January. That's like yesterday. I'm not ashamed to say that her book was on my Christmas wish list. Number seven, and if you do watch this episode, Good luck, Gypsy. We're wishing you well. Yes, completely agree. I think this is a good ending for her. 
I think this whole thing, like, and the Nick dude definitely is where he belongs, in prison forever, hopefully. Gypsy is free after having a horrible situation, and, I mean, obviously, it'd be nice if none of this ever happened, but it's about as happy ending as you get in a true crime show, isn't it? Thanks for being here. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.